welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. My little pocket of California, Los Angeles area, has had an uncharacteristic several days of clouds and gloominess and mist, but in my area, no rain. And it sort of corresponds to things going on outside in the world that are the subject of my podcast today. I mean, in terms of how it affects someone who is trying to lead a life of faith, listening to the news, both about the world at large, national news and Catholic Church news, sort of parallels the gloom. I know some of my listeners, some of my friends, actually, will probably think, gee whiz, once again, she's being a gloomy Gus. One of my, what I call, devoted listeners uh, has uh, said to me, you know, you should think some good thoughts. Well, I do. I am, I admittedly, a pessimist more often than not. But yes, I think good thoughts, and part of that comes with prayer. The way I see it, the only way that I can escape, if you will, and to think nothing but good thoughts, gee whiz, I'm beginning to sound a little bit like Tinkerbell, think good thoughts. No, no, he's right. But what I'm trying to say is the only way that I could, in my personal being, be able to do that would be literally to shut down everything and not pay attention to anything that's going on either in the church or in the world at large because it, it, it prevents me from thinking any kind of good thoughts even when I'm praying. Or let me try to put it another way. When I'm praying and all of these forces seem to be pressing upon me, it actually inhibits the prayer. Maybe that's the devil. Maybe it's my own psychology. Who knows what it is? But I do wonder sometimes that if I shut myself away and effectively pretended that none of this was happening, but at the same time intellectually know that it was and that I must pray about it, I might be more successful at my prayer life. Does this make any sense at all? So I guess the topic of this podcast, or the title, is whether escape is an option. To be honest with you, this is not new for me or probably for lots of people. I mean, I know people who have made decisions in order to be able to tolerate existing in this world because of the contradictions and the ugliness and the basically the, the turning away from anything objective, any objective truths in favor of truths enforced by power or truths that only exist because of the power of those to enforce the so-called truth. I was a teenager in the late 1960s, and while some people, very often people who weren't born at that time, seemed to think that it was a romantic period, the time when people became free, I see it as a time which begins the slide towards moral and emotional and spiritual imprisonment. No, I appreciate that some of you, maybe many of you listening, don't see it that way. Even those who were there, who saw it as this wonderful, liberating period. But 
a memory that pops into my brain is is something like June of 1968 when Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated only a few months after Martin Luther King was assassinated. I remember that time as one where any rules, any frame that existed prior were gone. I was in eighth grade in 1968 and started high school the next year or just before the next year. So the solid, calm, meditative, distinct concepts of all that time before simply were demolished as if they hadn't existed at all. From my perspective, those were the early days of what is being consummated now. I'm not the only person to ever have thought that. That is a common concept that both with regard to the church and to the society, the 1960s were a watershed time. But I was distracted by the natural trajectory of my life, having to go to school, having to get to college, having then to go to law school, having then to get a job, which brings me into the 1980s or 90s. And now in the 21st century, although I have a number of activities which keep me busy in retirement, I have more opportunity, if you will, less personal distraction, if you will, so that I'm aware more of what is happening outside. Plus, I have made it my business to be an educated and informed person. And so I can't ignore, I can't avoid what I am seeing, except if I escape in some way. A few years ago, I read a book called The Benedict Option, a strategy for Christians in a post-Christian nation by uh, Rod Dreyer. Now, I should say that Mr. Dreyer had been a Catholic, converted to Catholicism, but after having experienced his version of the pressures of the outside world and of the church, he concluded that he would prefer to be a, an Orthodox Christian. I want to say Greek Orthodox or one of those Orthodox uh, communities, but I'm not sure which. But just be it said that he decided that he no longer wished to be a Catholic. I think I understood his point at the time, which was kind of like the settlers circling the wagons in the Old West. You protect yourself as best you can. You develop your culture, in this case, the Catholic culture, presumably in its unchanging form, meaning that the dogmas of the church have not succumbed to the secular culture and preserving those unchanging those traditional values, maybe distilled to the fact that there is good and there is evil, and they are not relative, they are very clear. The thing that's not clear is how we behave and how we interpret things. That's what's not clear. And I guess what Dreyer is talking about is going back to first principles and not letting the secular culture continue to sleep into religious life in a way that distorts it. It's kind of like the Essenes going into the hills of the Dead Sea in the caves. Part of me is attracted to that because then you're not bombarded as much the great and little things that shake you up and send you on a digression into the culture and in some ways to your own psychological as well as spiritual destruction. I think one of the things he 
talks about is cutting yourself off somewhat from all the electronic media, she said as she was recording her podcast on electronic media. It's not just about conservative conservation, but about preservation of a core within the church that's getting lost, that's actually getting taken over by the larger society. I might have mentioned this image I also have from another book from Fahrenheit 451, which is about a culture that burns all of its books, particularly the ideas that are contained within. And we're seeing something of that in our society with books that are considered inappropriate for children to learn from, particularly if they offend someone, someone in power, because it's always about someone in power being offended, where it used to be that the culture accepted all the ideas and protected people who had various ideas. We're not doing that anymore. So in Fahrenheit 451, towards the end of the book and certainly of the movie, there are people in the woods who have memorized the books that are being burned. And so they are passing along the traditions of the society in order to hopefully bring it back down the road when this despicable, dystopic time is gone. And they're hopeful that that time will pass. And as I said in my last podcast, or one or two before, because I know I've been somewhat fixated on this subject, there are communities within the Catholic Church that are trying to pass down the 2,000 years of the Church prior to 1968, which actually didn't change after 1968, but which were kind of painted over, if you will. And as I've lived all these years, getting to my late 60s, I've come to think that they were painted over with malice aforethought. Again, I appreciate that many people won't agree, and I'm really not trying to get anybody to agree. I just see what I see and what lots of other people are seeing. You know, Catholics are not required to believe in certain types of miracles, like the ones at Lourdes and at Fatima. And I guess I was always glad that that was the case because while I did not scoff at them, I had an interior suspicion of them. And I suppose in some cases I still have a suspicion of the multitude. And there are a lot of them of different visions that people have had and Our Lady appearing in all sorts of places. But as I have lived my life and observed the goings-on of history, history in which I find myself, as we always do, find ourselves in the histories of our times, I am hard-pressed to ignore something like the vision of Lucy, Jacinta, and Francisco at Fatima in 1917. Actually, she appeared six times over the period from 1917 to 1920, and in 1920 I understand that there was another vision which was only to Lucia. World War I was going on during this time, portion of this time, and one of the things Our Lady did in her first, and I believe her other visions, was to remind the children of the need to pray the Rosary for the salvation of souls. I encourage you to go online and read about the visions at Fatima, but let me just give you a couple of things that happened during the visions and the messages given to the children and the exhortations, which when I look at the world right now, uh, I gotta tell you, 
I can't escape, she says. Escape is not an option, or it is an option. I think we're going to come to the point where I say it's not an option. But there are certain things that are so, so indicative of what's happening right now, in my opinion, as an ordinary Catholic. I always put that in there because, as I've said many times, I'm no theologian. I'm just looking at the past and the future and the present and coming up with a conclusion based upon facts. Now, how you interpret those facts and I interpret those facts, well, that's ever the problem. Plus, I appreciate that some of you will say that anything having to do with Fatima is not a fact. The first secret is related to a vision of hell, which is pretty scary stuff. I mean, it has all the elements you see in Dante. And yes, there are demons and there is suffering and there is lamentation and gnashing of teeth. You say, Jenna, you silly girl, there's no hell. Well, all I can say is I believe in God. I believe in heaven and I believe in hell. And I can tell you this too, I don't want to go to hell. And I hope even those who are not sure whether they believe in hell would prefer not to go there. In the second part of the three secrets, the second secret, it's kind of a combination thing. One, our lady asks that there be a consecration to her immaculate heart. You say, why Mary? She's just a human being, and there are many faiths, if you will, who give her very little weight in the work of salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, she is the quintessential model for us because she is totally human. Jesus, who was God and man, said in the Garden of Gethsemane, Not my will, but thine be done to the Father. Mary said, Thy will be done to the triune God, and set the standard for all of us. She also predicted a war worse than World War I, unless basically people repented. And if Russia was consecrated to her Immaculate Heart. Now, I'm not going to go into the debate over whether that ever happened. Lots of people say it did, lots of people say it didn't. But... If it didn't happen, if it doesn't happen, then Russia would spread its errors through the world. You can decide yourself whether or not that did happen. Even with the fall of Russia, has that not happened? It's not like communism has disappeared. In fact, it seems to be here. I know, I know, you don't all agree. I hear you, I hear you. And then there was the third secret, which a lot of people thought was parallel to the shooting of Pope John Paul II, and of course you may remember that he took the bullet that was in him and put it in the crown of the original statue. As I understand it, this is not the entirety of the third secret, or at least again, that's the debate, but this is what it said. And we saw in an immense light that is God, something similar to how people appear in a mirror when they pass in front of it. A bishop dressed in white, we had the impression that it was the Holy Father. Other bishops, priests, men and women, religious, going up a steep mountain at the top of which there was a big cross of rough-hewn trunks as of a cork tree with the bark. Before reaching there, the Holy Father passed through a big city, half in rooms and half trembling with halting step, afflicted with pain and sorrow. He prayed for the souls of the corpses he met on his way, 
Having reached the top of the mountain, on his knees at the foot of the big cross, he was killed by a group of soldiers who fired bullets and arrows at him. And in the same way, there died, one after another, the other bishops, priests, men and women religious, and various lay people of different ranks and positions. Beneath the two arms of the cross, there were two angels, each with a crystal aspersorium in his hand, in which they gathered up the blood of the martyrs, and with it sprinkled the souls that were making their way to God. And final word about the events at Fatima itself was something you may remember, the miracle of the sun, where the sun appeared to be coming down towards the crowd at a time when it was pouring rain initially, and all the people look up at this terrifying idea of the sun coming at them as if they're going to be destroyed, but then the sun goes back up and all of them are dry. It's no longer raining and the entirety of the crowd and the ground is dry. Now, while people do dispute that as well, the fact is if you see pictures from that time, every single person is looking up at the sky intently and it looks like with a little bit of apprehension. All I can say after I tell you all of this is that I've been paying more attention to the events, the miracles, the message of Fatima than I have heretofore. Because in my gut, I sense something is happening that is dramatic. Not that I know anything more about the day or the hour, but that there's a personal feeling that time is short. As I was rummaging around the net, I found that I came upon a picture of Sister Lucia with, I think, a priest, and I clicked on it and found that she had given an interview to a priest named Father Fuentes back in June or so of 1959. Now, of course, the thing wasn't recorded, at least as far as I can tell, in any way that you have a voice. I was hoping for that, actually. I was looking for that, you know, on YouTube. Sister Lucy speaks more about the visions at Fatima and what it will take for us to repent. I'm just going to give you a few nuggets from it. And as always, when you listen to this program, take it as you will, because I'm just an ordinary Catholic struggling along the road, trying to figure out how to save my soul. Because if you give me the choice between heaven and hell, it's a no-brainer. What she said was published in various places, in journals, and I think in some magazines. So here's one. Father, the Most Holy Virgin is very sad because no one has paid any attention to her message, neither the good nor the bad. The good continue on their way, but without giving any importance to her message. The bad, not seeing the punishment of God actually falling upon them, continue their life of sin without even caring about the message. But believe me, Father, God will chastise the world, and this will be in a terrible manner. The punishment from heaven is imminent. I hope that I fall more towards the good than the bad, but... I can tell you that all the years of the changing directions of the church have led me to actually wonder when I have committed an actual sin. Now, I know what is taught, but I've also been affected by everything around me. And for the most part, I have this little feeling inside of me when I'm rationalizing that even those things may not be a sin. It's not a very 
intense idea because mostly I have tried to hold to the traditions, to the mores, to the idea of mortal and venial sin. Let's just take sexual sin. I am a single woman who has never been married and is hard and unpleasant as the idea is in a society like ours. I have come to believe that I must be chaste and if I'm not, I have committed a mortal sin. I don't say that with any great glee or pride because, heck, I got my own problems. And this is a hard saying. And I know that most people out there would say, she's crazy. Oh no, I can tell you, well, maybe I'm still crazy, but I've had my own struggles, just like everyone out there. I used to think, for example, contraception isn't so bad. If the church just allowed contraception and said it wasn't a sin, instead of letting Catholics just disobey the rules on contraception, then we wouldn't have so many abortions. Mm, how's that worked out for the society at large? Here's a little tidbit. That which afflicts the Immaculate Heart of Mary and the heart of Jesus is the fall of religious and priestly souls. The devil knows that religious and priests who fail in their beautiful vocation drag numerous souls to hell. The devil wishes to take possession of consecrated souls. He tries to corrupt them in order to deaden the souls of lay people in a final impenitence. He employs all the tricks, even going so far as to suggest delaying entrance into religious life. The result of this is the sterility of interior life and among lay people, coldness regarding the subject of renouncing pleasure and total dedication to God. All those scandals that have happened since, well, they happened earlier, but they were discovered around 2002 and have lingered and corrupted us up till now. The idea that priests would do the kinds of things they did in the seminaries, that a cardinal would be defrocked for having lived a life that everybody knew of, deadens the souls of lay people. And what are they gonna say? I should live a chaste life, but you don't have to? So it wasn't ever true? So someone like me trying to be good would have to look at that and say, why am I leading a life of kind of a monastic when I could be having the same pleasures as everybody else is? So this part kind of reminds me a little bit of the Rod Dreyer book related to the Benedict option in what Sister Lucia apparently also said. Father, Sister Lucia also said to me, we should not wait for the Holy Father's call to penitence for the whole world to come from Rome. Neither should we wait for it to come from our bishops in their diocese, nor from the religious congregations. No, our Lord has already very often used these means and the world has not paid attention. This is why it is now necessary for each one of us to begin to reform himself spiritually. Each person must not only save his soul, but also the souls that God has placed in our path. So we do have to stand up, we do have to speak, and we do have to pray the rosary. Again, this is all new to me. I have been a very lethargic Catholic in my life. I've told you this, I was one of those kids that for the most part you know, followed authority, listened to everything that was I was told to do, and probably out of the fear of punishment, which is perhaps not the most elevated reason to refrain from doing bad things, but, you know, 
it's 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 very important and i think that's kind of where we find ourselves in the world right now we're kind of like those kids who are in the classroom doing all sorts of bad things saying i'm not gonna get caught and then when they get caught they go "Uh oh i didn't do anything when they in fact did and then punishment is meted out and they think it's unfair but you know what it's too late you're getting the punishment and in case of God and the humanity he created, there may come a punishment from which we cannot come back. We seem always surprised when we get caught, even though we've had plenty of warning. That's true of us as children, and I suppose that's true of us as children of God. So let me give you another piece of what she says, the final piece. Now, when he sees that the world pays no attention whatsoever, then, as we say in our imperfect manner of speaking, he offers us with a certain trepidation the last means of salvation, his most holy mother. It is with a certain trepidation, because if you despise and repulse this ultimate means, we will not have any more forgiveness from heaven, because we will have committed a sin which the gospel calls the sin against the Holy Spirit. This sin consists of openly rejecting with full knowledge and consent, the salvation which he offers. So what's my bottom line about escape? Escape really isn't an option. If I'm going to be a Catholic, an active, practicing Catholic, then I have an obligation not only to myself, but to the world. I'm either for God or I'm against him. We don't like that kind of simplicity because it prevents us from engaging in our rationalizations. It prevents me from engaging in my rationalizations, and I have them aplenty. When people want to do what they want to do, which gives them pleasure, which feels good, which they rationalize is moral because they need to do it, particularly as it comes to the church, they're not asking that the Holy Spirit guide them. They attribute to the Holy Spirit their predilections and then say, you see, the Spirit willed this. But in fact, it was the human being who willed it and just used the rationalization that the Holy Spirit is guiding them. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's going to say about that. So the bottom line is, for today, that I still want to escape. I want to escape very much. I want to hide out from the world and from the craziness in the church. But it ain't an option. And so we come to an end of another Ordinary Old Catholic Me, where I struggle online on a half-hour podcast, approximately half-hour, about the things that obsess me. And I'm guessing in some cases, in many cases, people are obsessed with it as I am. So I wish you well in the struggle. You pray for me, and I will pray for you. And I'll see you next week.